Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. If you're a parent, you'll be living with the consequences of school closures five days a week at the moment. I spend half every day teaching my eight-year-old and desperately trying to be a groovy dead poet society teacher who makes education fun. Not one of those squares who you write rude things about in your exercise book. But even if you don't have children, you'll be aware of the economic and social consequences of schools closing their gates in the middle of March. They're not just places for teaching and learning. They're a huge part of how society as a whole looks after its children. Now there is talk of reopening them in phases, starting in June after the May half term, if the virus allows. But how will that work? And what is the cost to children and parents if, in fact, we end up losing the whole summer term? My guest today is Laura McEnany, education journalist, chief executive of Teacher Tap, a governor and former teacher at an academy school. Hi, Laura. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Excited to hear that you've been teaching from home. How are you finding it? Well, all right, I think, but that's because I'm not measuring it against anything. And I want to ask you a little later if there is, you know, for advice and stuff, because I'm kind of just going with it. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems to be working okay. I haven't, there hasn't, haven't been, dis- there hasn't been any disciplinary hearings yet. I haven't, haven't blown my top. I sometimes take my glasses off and rub, rub my nose a little <laughs> exasperatedly, but I think that's okay. Has anyone learned anything? Yes, there's actually been learning going on. She's uh, she's she's got really into maths. Brilliant. Bizarrely, and capital cities and uh, jigsaws, which I don't know. I mean, that's not strictly on the curriculum yet. It's not Gove approved, <laughs> but um, I think it's an important part of, uh, of of her education. How are you? How are you getting on? Yeah, we're good. So I run TeacherTap, as you mentioned, which is a daily survey. Now has about 8,000 teachers every day send us information about what they've been up to. And that's just always been helpful because when we launched it in 2017, we were trying to find out what was normal in a school day. But now what we're finding is what's normal on a not school day as well, because everyone's learning in their own homes. And that means teachers are trying to teach from their own homes. So it's a great way of being able to find out what's going on. And the teachers can also keep an eye on what other teachers are doing, because you're suddenly all sort of working in little pods or under the stairs or in a kitchen stuff with your own children. Well, I saw a report the other day which said apparently only... um 50% of private school pupils are kind of handing in assigned work or kind of like responding to to work that they've been set online. Only 27% in even the highest achieving state schools. Now, obviously, a lot of parents still have to work and nobody's able to kind of... um, Not everybody has seen their their, their career partially collapse like me, thus freeing up teaching time. Um, Is that sort of number about what you'd expect? Does that seem seem low? Or, I mean, are there lots of sort of factors why, why those figures would be low? So there's a couple of bits there. Um, We did a survey on behalf of the Sutton Trust, who then put out an impact briefing on school closures. And what that survey found was about half of private schools are doing online streamed lessons. So that means that the children sit at the computer and they talk to their teacher and lessons are being delivered all day. Obviously, half are not doing that, but they usually have some kind of online platform. Both Google and Microsoft have quite big ones. There are some other providers as well. And that means the children can see lesson materials. They can send messages to their teachers. They can get things marked online. That's about half of private schools. That just isn't really happening within the state sector. Now, around 9% of secondary schools, so one in 10, are doing some kind of live streaming 
or or the teacher is online talking to the children if the children can't speak back that's almost never happening with primary schools because of safeguarding again with secondary schools more of them are doing online platforms where they can chat to the children kind of like whatsapp style or they can pick up work but a lot of this goes back to what happened on march the 18th you know gavin williamson on that day stood up and he gave a nine minute speech. And in nine minutes, he said, in two days time, schools were closed until further notice. Schools will then become a delivery arm for food for poor families. They will still have to childcare for key workers, children and those with special needs. And there will have to be distance learning. That was about 48 hours before all of that came in. And he gave it in nine minute speech. Where schools were on the 18th of March is where many of them still are now because they just didn't have time to prepare. And we know that with private schools, they already had a lot of online software. They can assume that their children have got technology or at least many more of their children will have technology at home. If you're in a school like the one where I previously worked, where actually many of your children don't have their own devices, they're in very large families, not everybody could be live streaming at the same time on a data package, and the school just simply hasn't got the technology to do it, then it's much trickier. And I think that's why we're seeing a big separation. Some people have got children who are sat there nine till three, getting delivered lessons and everything is fine. There are other people who've been given a textbook and a good look and they're having to try and drag their children through everything, including getting them up in the morning, getting them writing a sentence and getting them doing some maths. Well, I mean, I mean, parents are parents are very different, and and some people obviously it depends on, on their sort of their time, their inclination, how they're going to approach homeschooling. And I think a lot of people worry if they're, if they're doing too much or too little. Should they have a regular timetable or sort of let kids, you know, pursue their in- own interests, experiment with boredom, uh, you know, see what they get into? Is there any kind of uh, generic advice for people that maybe don't know if they're doing this right? Well, I think there's no way of knowing if you're doing it right at the moment, because again, you know, everyone had this nine minute speech sort of foisted upon them. Um, I've got a co-founder, Professor Becky Allen. She and I were both teachers before um, she went into academia and now runs TeachTap with me. And she's got two children at home at the moment as well. And she just wrote a great blog that was about the fact that most activities that schools send home um, can do one of two things. They can either be really engaging and motivating for the children. So you as a parent don't have to do very much or they help children learn. (laughs) And unfortunately, things that do both of those are quite rare. So if you feel as if you get your child engaged, but they don't remember much, or when they are doing really quite hard work, they're not that engaged and you're having to chivvy them along, that is kind of you doing it right. It is very difficult to get both of those things at once. What the government has created uh, or helped been involved in creating is um, giving some money to the Oak National Academy. That's an online platform of lesson plans that's available for every year group up to year 10. And there are several hours of videos, activities. Um, It's harder with little ones because their motivation wanes and they might not be so good with using the computer. Um, But BBC Bite Size is also now um, delivering lessons every single day. And those are slightly more engaging activities, even if perhaps your children might not at the end of the day remember exactly exactly what uh, what they learnt in their geography lesson. Well, you've been speaking to teachers and heads during the lockdown. What are the biggest concerns? What's the stuff that's sort of un- unprompted that they would they would they would want to talk to you about and worry about? And there's two different experiences that head teachers versus classroom teachers have had. I mean head teachers most of them or at least half of them on any given day are in school doing rotations, looking at the key workers, children, trying to sort out the school vouchers, debrief their governors. They've got a lot of technical aspects of running the school. The classroom teachers, I think, have found it 
very disruptive because they do like the relationships with their children. And there's a certain amount of heat that's going towards them, I think, because people are saying, well, they're not doing their job. They're not available online. They're not phoning us. But there are safeguarding concerns around um, doing that. And also not every teacher, for example, will have a, a phone where they would feel comfortable phoning lots of families, for example, or even be able to in terms of minutes or data or everything else. So getting that sorted has been quite difficult. But the main concern for everybody is They want the relationships with their pupils to come back. They want to get them learning. They want everybody still to be progressing forwards. When you're a teacher, you know, that is everything. You get up early in the morning, you work all day, you sit and mark at night because you want those kids to be able to do well. And particularly for secondary schools, where the whole thing gears up towards being able to perform in year 11. It's your end of term performance. It's your equivalent of standing on a stage is doing those exams. That's been taken away. And those teachers are rapidly trying to work out how they rank all of their students for every subject in order to give them a GCSE grade and an A-level grade. And that's really harrowing. It's so difficult when you've taught 200 children for five years and you've adored them and you've worked so hard and then you have to sit and just rank them on what you think. Really difficult. Well, I've got friends in those years, GCC and A-level, who just, they, their kids are, are completely, uh, sorry, my friends are their parents. Um, I don't have that many young friends. Um, <laughs> but their kids, are, you know, feel sort of completely adrift. And I wonder about the, um, I mean, is it just is it just a sort of, an, there's an inevitable unfairness, that it, it's an imperfection about these predicted grades and that there are actually people that maybe were really working their socks off towards their exams you know, to do better than their predicted grades, but we're simply never, we're not, we're not going to know what they would have done. Yes, there but is. With, you just have to do that because otherwise universities don't know, you know, who they're going to let in. Yeah, we categorically know from previous years looking at UCAS grades that around 8% of young people are given lower predicted grades than they go on to get at A-level for their university applications. Now, that's a small percentage. So there's only 8% of of young people each year at A-level who do better than predicted. Most people do much worse than predicted. But it does show us that, so this is why it's always amusing to me. I do have a lot of people who say, my child was working really hard. And although their predicted grades were low, I know they would have gone on and done better. And 8% of those parents are probably correct. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Or, well, it might be slightly more than that, but it's only the case for 8% of children and a lot more than that seem to suggest their child would be in that group. Um, However, there are some that would have been in that group. So absolutely, there will be some who won't get the grades that they might have got otherwise on exam day. Um, But I think more than that, it's the fact that A, year 11 and year 13, so that's the 16 and 18 year olds, about a third of schools are just not teaching them anymore. And it is a very long time between now and the next year of what comes. And if you're a 16-year-old who doesn't do any maths from now, because frankly, you might think that's quite boring, but you want to do maths A-level in another six or seven months' time, that's going to be really difficult. So I worry about that group, as do lots of schools. Um, The year 13 is the same. They now don't do any work. Eventually, they go to university. Will they be quite far behind? And how do you keep them motivated? How do you get them up in the morning? You know, if I just spent five years of my life building up towards something, and then it all got taken away, you might think, well, I'm never going to work for anything ever again. Because how do I know it's not just going to get taken from me? And the psychological impacts of that for teenagers, I think, are quite massive. And then for the young children who've just got their feet under the table at school, you know what it's like with five-year-olds? They really struggle with school to start with some of them. And they've just got used to it. And now they're at home all day with their parents. 
the idea they've got to go back again and go through all of that separation, that's going to be really difficult. Well, I mean, some people have argued for for a long time that actually summer holidays are, are too long because you get this phenomenon of the sort of so-called summer slide where particularly less advantaged children lose ground um, in terms of their education and also kind of other sort of physical health as well. Um, and so the longer you're away from school, the more inequality there is. So is that just, does that mean, I mean, I'm going to move on to kind of when it is sensible to reopen. But people talk about the economic impetus for, for reopening schools. But is there kind of a real, not not to do it prematurely, but is there a real sort of social impetus there? Because with every week that passes, that, that, that some kids are just sort of slipping further and further behind. Yeah, I think it depends how you look at the problem. As you've just said, we do have six weeks every year in the summer anyway. And um, there is a learning loss that comes with that. And it tends to recruit to certain groups more than others. That said, we also see huge impacts just on arrival at school that then go throughout children's lives in terms of family background and school overcomes some of it. But children are at home a lot of the time. So I think we can sometimes overplay how important school is. Um, and then we can also simultaneously uh, think it's, you know, I don't want to underplay it as well. Um, I think it's not all of children's lives. They do have six weeks off. If they were just having six weeks off now and everything was going back, it wouldn't be a massive problem. And when you look around the world, most people aren't going back till September because countries like Ireland and Italy and the US have much longer school holidays than we have. So actually, we don't have a massive holiday. I think what's difficult is we've got an accumulation of a number of different things here. It's going on for a long time. We don't know how long it's going for. The private schools have got it together and are doing online learning. Those who are in wealthier areas are doing a bit more. And those who are in the poorest areas are reporting that their children are doing the least and have the least access. And the longer that that disparity goes on, the more we are exaggerating differences that we already see and that schools never really catch up on. So it, it, for me, it's more about... Um, what's happening week on week than for how long it happens. You wrote a piece for The Guardian, uh, sort of headline, Education Was Never School's Sole Focus. And we know thanks to Sarah Vine's unwise tweeting that Michael Gove is a, is a key, keen reader uh, whose tastes roam far and wide. Um, but you can argue in the piece that sort of his approach, this sort of grad grindy kind of like just, ed, you know, just concentrate on the kind of absorbing the information reforms that his sort of personal um especially when he was at education has sort of diminished the, the the kind of the importance of schools outside of lessons or not diminished but he was downplaying them and that actually a school does so much more yeah i if anything he didn't diminish it what he did was he put a brick wall in front of it and no one could see it and no one funded it but behind those brick walls the school teachers still had to do this stuff and the reason i wrote the piece then the line in it is, you know, cancel schools and look, who are the people who are still feeding the children? Who are the people who are going out to vulnerable families? Who is looking after the children with special needs? Who are making the phone calls to those who are worried about with safeguarding? It's the schools. It was always the schools. They were always doing this stuff. And the second you take the lessons away, you finally get to see everything that the schools have still done, but no one talked about, no one funded, and no one said was important. And that's why, um, Actually, I think this has been an, an instructive lesson for Gove. I hope he takes his own traditional learning path and reads carefully about what's happening in schools, thinks about it, and with his new knowledge, might take a different tact in future. Of course, he's not the current education secretary. And I do have to say that Gavin Williamson, who is, hasn't been 
fantastic through this in terms of policy delivery. There have been real problems with school meals, but I do think his tone has been very respectful towards what schools are doing, and that's welcome. So you mentioned meals there. What are some of the other roles that schools play, be, you know, beyond beyond the lessons that perhaps people just don't, like you said, people don't think about, particularly if they don't have kids at school themselves? At the moment, head teachers are writing bereavement policies because they're fully aware that there will be many children who are losing grandparents or parents. They might be losing teachers and head teachers. They will certainly be losing people in their lives. And, you know, that's a role that schools play all the time. There are children whose parents die all the time. And no one ever notices how schools hold those children and try and get them counselling, try and give them solid relationships. And yes, we do that through teaching them history and by teaching them English and maths. But the relationships are always there. That's just one simple thing on top of all of, you know, everything around special needs, safeguarding, vulnerable children, making sure they're fed, making sure that when they fell down, you're wiping their knee, making sure when they fall out with their friends, they've got someone to talk to. It's a massive relationship building exercise schools, as well as one in which we help people become more knowledgeable and get the skills for the future. So, I mean, presumably there'll be some situations when you're talking about sort of safeguarding that there will be um, parents in, sorry, there'll be teachers in many schools that will know that there are certain kids where things are, are kind of pretty, um, you know, could get pretty rocky or dark at home. Yeah. Uh, but they can kind of keep they kind of keep an eye on them every, you know, five days a week and they get a sense of how that is. And so presumably now there's some that feel a real kind of sense of concern about That's certain right. kids that they just can't, they're not seeing now. Yeah, and vulnerable children are supposed to still be in school. That was messaged very badly by the government because they rolled together a, a number of different types of children who would be able to access school. And in the case of key worker children, for example, they were saying, if you can keep your child at home, please do, but we will make available childcare for the children of doctors. In the case of vulnerable children, however, particularly those who have social workers, the view now is that those children should be in school. And this week, I think Michael Gove said in his in his briefing that only one in 10 are turning up. That means nine in 10 vulnerable children are not currently in school. Now, there are many schools doing visits, doing phone calls. They should be working with social workers on this, although many social workers have been told to work from home. So that does leave groups very, very vulnerable. However, they are everybody's top concern. I've got some teacher friends and they've you know, told me that the numbers of, um, of kids coming in, whether, uh, like you said, vulnerable kids or children of key workers, was far lower than they were expecting. Um, and that really you, you ended up sort of with, with teachers outnumbering the pupils in, in, you know, in one, one case. Um, why do you think that so many people, because it seemed as if, I remember there was a joke that, you know, journalists covering it counted as key workers and that they'd be trying to kind of exploit it and trying to get their, you know, get their kids in school for the week. But actually it seems the, the opposite has happened. Lots of people that could put their kids into school have chosen to take them out. Is that a kind of, is that a messaging issue? Is that just that, that you know, that the fear is very, very strong and people just, you know, think that that's too much of a risk? Um. I, I actually don't have any data on it, so I don't know. And I guess that's more around the parents. Certainly, the experience in school is not the same. These aren't schools. These are childcare hubs that are operating in a school. So I don't think it's particularly satisfying for a child to have to sit two metres away from their friends in a room that will be some teachers or teaching assistants that they may never even have met. 
Where children are older as well, they typically can look after themselves and stay home. We ask teachers about their own children. And once their children are over 13, they are typically staying at home, even if that teacher is in school, as is their partner. Um, in primary, there are slightly higher numbers and those numbers have started to go up again after the Easter holiday, which would suggest that more people are able to go back into work because of social distancing. And although people are concerned, the research at the moment suggests that at least amongst the under 10s, there is a very low risk from going to school. Um, but obviously, there is still concern that they might still be spreading the virus back to their parents or other people in vulnerable households. We also know that a lot of people have, you know, vulnerable people in their household. What do you do if you've got a grandparent or a parent who's 80 in your house and then you've got a 10-year-old child? Do you send them to primary school? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. There's just, you, that's not a risk you're going to take. Um, it's really no, difficult. Well, over the weekend, there were these um, uh, ideas, uh, plans mooted to sort of reopen schools starting um after the May half term, some ideas involved bringing them back sort of year by year, starting with year six, staggering the timetable to break up the school run. I saw some some mention of sort of just having lunch outside, so you're not packing people into canteens, and because it, it spreads um, much much less easily uh, if you're outside. So there just seems to be all these kind of ideas. What do you? What's your kind of instinct at the moment? Reading reading these sort of um, reading these plans. How likely? I mean, we don't. We try not to do predictions here, but I suppose I should just ask: what, What's your reaction to seeing these plans with that date in mind? Well, we've been asking whether we should be asking questions on this. So every day on Teach Tap, we ask three questions, and then the next day the teachers get to see the results. And often the results get picked up and used by policymakers. And we've even been wondering: Do we even ask? Should we even suggest? You know, which of these things would you like to see? Which of these sound plausible to you? Because our teachers and ourselves, we're not the experts in the science and the research. We can have feelings and opinions, but are they the things that should be listened to? Um, especially in the first instance, just around safety. Then um, it's just difficult to even know for an, any individual school what they could do. So, for example, could you eat your lunch outside? Well, it depends on your outside space. I taught in a school where we had one small playground to share between 900 children. We already did a lunch shift in which we shared the ground floor and the outside. We couldn't possibly have done everybody outside, uh, even at social distancing. Then you've got uh, issues around, okay, well, if you do certain year groups, what does that mean for teachers who teach those year groups, but then their children are in a different year group? <laughs> so I have a child who I need to childcare for the same week that I should be teaching. Um, and that's where all of the complications and difficulties start to come in. And I think until we've got maybe a little bit more on the science, um, maybe a little bit more of an understanding, I'm really hesitant to give any predictions, but also even hesitant at this point to start asking because I don't want to disappoint people. If they, they say they want to do something, but the science says it's wrong, who would we follow? Should you follow teacher voice? Should you follow the science? It's so difficult. So are you aware of, of much kind of pressure from, from teachers uh, to, to reopen? Or is it coming from, is there more impetus coming from parents or coming from government? I think parents need some form of childcare to start getting their life back, particularly when they have young children. And when I say life back, I do obviously mean their ability to work, but also a bit of respite. 24-hour care of anyone is very difficult and a lot of the time people use their family they use their friends and that's not an option for them at, at the moment so in terms of everybody's mental health 
their ability to continue working, childcare would 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 be a good thing. Of course, teachers don't particularly always think of themselves as child carers. They are teachers and they deliver lessons and learning. How comfortable they feel about being in and essentially being supervisors of other people's online lessons. And I would I wouldn't want to spend my afternoons trying to keep kids two meters apart from each other. That would be miserable for me and them and our relationship, but it may have to be done. So I think the it's not pressure. I think the necessity derives benefits towards the parents and the children for their socialization. But I think the reality of how this will play out in schools might be quite grim for a while and working out how we therefore do that as effectively as possible without making everybody miserable <laughs> is really important, but really hard. I mean, because you say, like I said, teachers do not want to think of themselves as, as you know, providing childcare. You know, they are, they're kind of, they're, they're kind of educators and they don't think of themselves as just sort of like, uh, like a nursery for older kids, you know, where it's just like looking after kids while the parents go to work. But a report I saw by Tony Blair's foundation when it was kind of designating different kinds of like hard lockdown, soft lockdown, soft open, hard open. The big difference between hard and soft lockdown was the schools. There were some, there were some other things, but it was mainly schools. And the difference to the economy was enormous. Um, and so I suppose like you do, you almost have this kind of conflict of of um, of the way that schools are being seen, and that so the, the the economic uh, benefits of sort of basically having the children looked after all day is sort of huge, but that's not really kind of how schools and teachers, even though you said they do all they do have all these other kind of parts of their job, but they don't want to see them primarily as looking after people's kids while they go off and uh, generate GDP. Also because it's inefficient. So there's a reason why, um, I mean, I, I have in the past on podcasts called schools and like national babysitting services and got in trouble. But fundamentally, <laughs> that is what it is. Um, but whilst we have children in our care in schools, we like to do lots of things that help close those social inequality gaps that we talked about earlier. So making sure everybody can read. If we're going to have kids here, let's teach them to read. Let's teach them maths. Let's teach them everything else. And that's what the teachers have got really good at because it's hard to get kids to learn as most people who are trying to overschool are now finding out. And doing that in a room with 30 children is a craft. That said, there is a, a moral aspect of what happens within schools around enabling that childcare and facilitating it. And it may not be the job everyone's um, trained for, and it may not be the, the job that the buildings are particularly set up for. But as you've just said there, there is quite a big economic difference. So one way to think about the return of schools might be to think about the expansion of childcare. Is it that instead of go schools going back, what we do is we expand the childcare hubs that are now in school to more children in various different ways, and we do that for several months. The downside of that is you don't solve the social inequality problem. And that's why I think a lot of people push back against it, not because the teachers don't want to think of themselves just as child carers, but also because they think of that as a waste of their time. If they could be teaching those children, they feel they should be teaching those children. And so it's hard to stand back and say, actually, all I can do right now is supervise them. Well, in the first sort of week, I remember this, the, the week of the schools being closed and people homeschooling. And it was almost kind of like a, like a joke that you'd see. I'd see a lot on, on Twitter and Facebook and people going, you know, God, pay teachers whatever they want. You know, this is, <laughs> I can't believe how hard this job is. And, and we're seeing 
talk of you know people appreciating um, health workers and care workers more than in the past. Do you think that this kind of experience of making you know of turning so many parents into sort of probably in their own minds somewhat inadequate teachers for several weeks will um, maybe sharpen their appreciation of what teachers do and what the what the school as a whole does after this is over? Um. Maybe. Certainly people think that primary teachers, I think now are magical. You know, the amount of people who said to me over the years when they've taught, uh, when they've had a kid's birthday party for their five or six year old, and at the end of the day, they're absolutely exhausted. And then you point out to them that this is what primary school teachers basically shepherd all day, every day, while simultaneously getting those children to read and do maths. (laughs) Always makes people sympathetic anyway. Um, I think my concern is that we might end up with parents getting increasingly angry if they don't feel that their school is providing enough, especially when they see such big disparities between what some schools are providing than others. And that can't continue long term. So I certainly don't think a textbook and a good look wish is going to last through until the autumn if schools aren't back properly. Um, So there should be maybe some minimum expectations placed on schools around what contact pupils can expect. And The final thing I I hope we might see is teachers coming to know and understand the parents and families a bit more, especially in secondary. You can often be quite remote from the families and the children's home lives. And there are good reasons for that. You don't necessarily always want everyone knowing everything about families all of the time. But actually, if there can be a bit more of a partnership between parents and their schools, if the parents can understand a bit more about the curriculum and actually the teachers respect how much the parents do put in and do care about their children. And actually, a lot of parents have spent a lot of money on their children's learning in lockdown as well, making sure they've got computers and books and looking out for them. And and where they can't, really trying hard to get those children the facilities, then I think we could end up in a good position in the future. But it will rely on everybody trying to understand where the other one is coming from. Yeah. Well, as in, as in so much <laughs> in society is, uh, is trying to understand where everyone else is coming from. Thanks for joining me, Laura. Thank you for having me. That was, uh, that was very ed- educational and entertaining. Like my lessons for my eight-year-old. Ed- edutaining. <laughs> as long as they learn something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I learned a lot. You can test me. There's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday with the regular edition on Wednesday. Plus, we have a live on Zoom Romaniacs Bunker Sound Clash this evening, so please register for that. It should be fun. Take care. I'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky and produced by Andrew Harrison. Jacob Archbold was the assistant producer and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a podcaster's production.